the season that we are celebrating, the season of Advent, is the time about four to five weeks before Christmas, which the church historically has set aside to celebrate Advent. Advent means coming. And we're referring to the coming of Jesus. For the church, there are two Advents. The first one that we focus on is his first appearing, when God showed up in a manger. Such a strange and wonderful story. Because it involves the idea that when God, at the beginning of the story, somewhere in eternity, imagined a place that he would create. And when he created it, the story goes that he chose to involve and engage creatures that he created in his likeness and in his image, humankind. And he chose that we, those of us that would look like him in some way, would rule and help to propagate good in the world and make this place better. In fact, if you read the end of the book, the sacred text, the Bible, you find out that one day that the kingdoms of this world shall become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever. In other words, God intends one day to come here. Sometimes we casually think as Christians, we die to go to heaven, heaven's our home. Well, it's true. If you die right now, you're going to go to heaven. But understand that those who are in heaven now are longing for the day when they will return to their bodies and we will be resurrected on this planet for eternity. So the ultimate reason God created a world was to move into it. That was just like when you build a house, usually you plan to move in. Right? That's God's stream. Well, the very ones he chose in tragic irony, the very ones he chose to help this project along rebelled, sort of set the project on fire. And this world started spinning out of the creative gesture of good into disorder and chaos and nothingness. That disordering is what we know today as evil. It's the ungooding of the world. And we participated in that. We're the ones that sort of pushed that agenda forward. Surprisingly, instead of God abandoning this project and going on and leaving us to our own devices, God chose to become like one of us. And his real dream was to recapture us so we could be re-imaged. See, the image, we were in the image of God. The Latin phrase is the imago Dei, the very likeness of God. Well, that image was marred, just like old statues you see where their you know, pieces of it are broken off, arms are broken off, or whatever, nose is broken off. We were marred, and we were less than what God dreamed us to be. And so when Jesus comes, the reason he comes is to come into flesh and to open up a whole new way for a whole new creation where the, those of us that had lost our way, the human race, could be re-imaged, re-imago-dayed. Jesus called it being born again. That somehow we could once again be a part of bringing good into the world and reestablishing his kingdom in this world. So the focus of the believer isn't supposed to be heaven. The focus of the believer in the prayer we actually prayed was, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy... Thy... On earth as it is in heaven. We're to be shunts of faith to the world. Caring for the world in which we're a part of. So this Advent... 
we celebrate as Christ coming into the world, bringing light in a place that had turned completely dark. But the story doesn't end there. Because not only did he have the promise of coming the first time, as he's leaving, he promises to Advent again. We pick up the narrative in Acts chapter 1. It says Jesus had been talking to these guys and as after he's finished, he's actually taken up before their very eyes. He's going up. He disappears in this cloud. And the disciples were looking intently up into the sky as Jesus was going. And suddenly, these two men dressed in white, they're angels, standing beside them. Men of Galilee, why are you standing here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken away from you into heaven, will come back. In the same way that you see him going, he's coming back physically to this planet. The biblical claim is Jesus is coming back. (laughs) You know, when when I first came to faith, Mark and I, when we first came to faith back in the uh, Middle Ages... We hung around with this group that uh, talked a lot about Christ's return. In fact, we used to we used to pass out these fake newspapers that were like the day after Jesus came back, you know, like the news from the day after. So the newspaper said Christ returns, you know, had all these articles. (laughs) So (laughs) we were sure the return was close. I mean, maybe this weekend. Certainly within the next couple of years. Certainly we don't have time to get jobs. Something as mundane as that. <laughs> He's, Jesus was coming. Well, that was 40 years ago. When you first hear about it, the idea about Jesus coming back, I mean, it is, it is pretty cool that, that the one that we've only known by faith will actually see with our eyes. There's something extremely motivating about that, fascinating about it, the imminent return of Christ. It produces some pretty intense devotion in the eye of the beholder that looks at those kinds of ideas. The Apostle John said that when he talked about it in 1 John 3. He said, dear friends, now we are children of God. So sweet. And what we will be, has, and we don't even know. We can't get our minds around it. He said, but we, we do know this, that when he does appear, we, we shall be like him. And, and, because we're going to see him as he is. And all of us who have this hope, it messes with us. We, when we have this hope, we purify ourselves. It, it does something in us when we entertain the idea he could be coming. Just like if, if, if a bunch of us said we're coming over to your house for dinner tonight, probably some of you would go home and actually clean it. Get food ready, right? You'd be, you'd be scurrying. Why? Because the, the appearing, the coming, the advent would stir something in you. The church loved that. The whole idea that we're going to see him so cool. Sweet news. But there have been problems. <laughs> uh, as far back as you care to go back historically, you can find preachers pounding their fists on the pulpits, declaring Jesus was going to return in their day and in a particular time. And by using obscure prophecy texts, and there's all kinds of Bible texts that are a bit obscure, 
that you can try to wrangle by pulling them out of the scripture and, and you know, grabbing some newspaper or some current event and try to get them to line up. You know, kind of like somebody reading tea leaves, you know, trying to get them to line up so that they could predict the time of his returning. Now, Jesus really pushed back with his disciples on this business of time. He said that he's going to be coming. He said there would be signs of his return. But the signs weren't, they weren't supposed to react by thinking, well, then is it this time? He pushed back. He actually told them, but about the day, the hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the sun, only the Father knows. But, but, they, but, but focusing on anything that has to do with time, I'm suggesting to you, has been the problem, the bane of this whole business of the second advent. It has caused much trouble. Today's prophetic gurus, and you can catch them on TV from time to time, they, they, they have these insights they claim from these prophetic texts, and they, and they, they speak with such certainty and such immediacy you get the feeling if you don't keep watching the next show, stay really close and listen. You might not be ready right, to meet the Lord. And, and then when what they say doesn't happen in the time frame in which they said, or when their interpretation, the way that they interpret things, starts to change. They need to come up with new uh, new hermeneutics, new, uh, new, new, new things that they can use to interpret the text. They change it. Completely unapologetically, kind of like a local meteorologist changes the weather forecast. Oh, okay. Um, In 1988, there's a book (laughs) that came out entitled 88 Reasons Why the Rapture is in 1988. How many of you remember that? Poor unfortunate souls that we were. (laughs) You know, it was a book written by this, uh, really, uh, he was a... um, uh, uh, an engineer who had worked through all of these passages and got them all out and wrangled them and you know got it and really laid out 88 reasons why Jesus would come back in 1988. I uh, people I knew, I'm telling you, hundreds of thousands of believers bought that little book uh, and made it sort of the central issue of their lives in 1987 into 1988. And people I knew, they were passing out books to relatives and friends and coworkers and neighbors. It created quite a stir quite a fever. Now, by 1988, I, you know, I'd been pastoring for about eight years, and I'd been around the block a couple of times, and uh, so I wasn't nearly as taken with the idea, and I, I remember telling the people that I pastored at the time, I said, listen, guys, I love that you're thinking about Christ's return. That's cool. That, that does something good in your heart, but I'm telling you, don't get too excited, and I don't want to pop your last day's bubble, but I actually have plans for 1989. <laughs> well, 1988 came and went. 1989 hit. And that author came out with another book entitled 89 Reasons Why Christ is Coming Back in 1989. <laughs> it, it didn't sell nearly as well. Some people even back off their faith when they have experiences like that. Because it wears you out. Because when you start preaching about Jesus' return, it, it, if you're not careful, if you have that impassioned plea, it's co- sort of Chicken Little-ish. Do you remember Chicken Little? The sky is falling! The sky is falling! Right? And in a panic, talking to me, this guy's falling in. And it's weird because Chicken Little always seems to find Henny Penny and Cocky Locky and Goosey Boosey. And you have this whole movement going on. This guy is falling. And, and the problem with that is it always yields this less than favorable result because last day's fervor actually is like a fever. And uh, what ends up happening is it's just short, it's like the flu. 
fact, I, I like to call it the last day's flu. Because it hits you hard, lasts a little while, and afterwards you're worn out. That's what happens. I cannot tell you how worn out I have gotten over the years from last day's chatter that goes around evangelical circles. It wears me out. And yet, when I read the New Testament, and when you read the New Testament, you get the idea that they expected Jesus to return at any moment. And they lived like that. Why? See, why would the Bible guys talk about the return of Jesus in a way that suggested it could happen at any moment? Why would they do that? Were they trying to get them all jacked up in chicken little style? All up into a fever? I don't think that's true. I think the answer is found in what Paul said in 2 Timothy 4. Look at it with me. Paul writes, Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have what? Longed for his appearing. Everybody say, longed for his appearing. Part of the Christian's life, part of what it means to be a Christ follower, part of what should define us is our longing for the return of Jesus Christ. We should cultivate this notion. He is coming back. In fact, the Bible actually ends with the phrase, Come quickly, Lord Jesus. There's something in us that's cultivating that is right. It's not unlike the first coming of Messiah. If you read the prophecies of the Old Testament and look at the nation of Israel, the very nation longed for his coming. And all of the prophets and all of the people from generation to generation kept thinking, maybe now. Maybe it's now. Maybe it's come. Maybe Messiah's here. They always had that anticipation and that hope and that longing for Messiah. In fact, they longed for it so much that if you were a woman who was barren, it was one of the great shames. Why? You couldn't bear Messiah. And every woman that was pregnant thought, maybe this is Messiah. It actually defined who Israel was. In like manner, the second coming, the advent, should define who we are. As we are pregnant with hope, with the future, with looking, stepping into a new year, we ought to have in us, maybe this is the time. Maybe Jesus is coming soon. That kind of idea, entertaining it in our hearts, that longing, not in the chicken little style, but in just the simple notion that Jesus said he was returning, should encourage us and help us in our faith. Now, the early leaders knew that this kind of thinking would generate skeptics. Why? Because Jesus hadn't come. And as every generation goes to the next one, just like Israel had to think, maybe Messiah is not coming. And there were skeptics. There were people who said, no, he is coming. They, these early Christian leaders in the first century, knew that they'd have scoffers. In fact, Peter writes in 1 Peter 3, or 2 Peter 3, rather, and he actually said, don't be confused. A little later on, he says, don't be confused that if the Lord hasn't returned, that he's slack concerning his promises. He's not. He's doing business we don't get. We can't get our minds around. But he said to them, above all, you must understand that in the last days, as time just ekes on, crawls on, scoffers will come. They will scoff following their own evil desires, and they're going to say, huh, where is this coming? He promised. 
Even since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. That's first century. They knew scoffers would be present. There were scoffers present then. We go into the third century. This is St. Ephraim around 250 AD. Listen to what he writes. To prevent his disciples from asking the time of his coming, Christ said, about that hour no one knows, neither the angels nor the Son. It is not for you to know the times or the moments. He has kept those things hidden. Why? So that we might keep watch. Each of us thinking that he will come in our own day. If he had revealed the time of his coming, his coming would have lost its savor. It would no longer be an object of yearning for the nations and the age in which it will be revealed. He promised that he would come but did not say when he would come. And so all generations and all ages, including us, await him Eagerly, he goes on, though the Lord has established the signs of his coming, the time of their fulfillment has not been plainly revealed. These signs have come, they've gone with a multiplicity of change. More than that, they're still here, they're still present. His final coming is like his first coming. As holy men and prophets waited, thinking that he would reveal himself in their own day. So today, each of the faithful longs to welcome him in his own day because Christ has not made plain the day of his coming. He has not made it plain for this reason, especially that no one may think that he whose power and dominion rule all numbers and all times is somehow ruled by that fate and that time. He described the signs of his coming. How could he has how what he has himself decided be hidden from him? Therefore, he used these words to increase respect for the signs of his coming, so that from that day forward all generations and ages might think that he would come again in their own day. End quote. Third century. Third century. Two hundred fifty. They were saying, listen, Jesus is coming. Think about it. Jesus is coming. And don't be thrown that he hasn't come yet. Because it's it's not about the time. It's about what that notion produces in us. Somehow thinking, what if it's true? What if 2011 Jesus will come? What if this month Jesus? Somehow thinking about that. It messes with us in a way that's spiritually formative. It messes with us in a way that is what It's critical to the Christian development of spirituality. It's our advent. Titus, my last text, Titus 2. Paul's talking about the coming of Christ. And he says, for the grace of God shows up. It's appeared. And it offers salvation. We don't have to save ourselves. It offers salvation to people. It, this grace, actually teaches us to say no to the wrong things and yes to the right things. We say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. We say yes to self-control, uprightness, godly lives in this present age. All that's not by human effort alone. It's by grace, he's claiming. While we wait for the blessed hope. What is the blessed hope of the believer? The appearing, the advent, the second coming. Of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own. Eager. Everybody say eager. Eager Eager to do what is good. See, 
When you think about the return of Christ, when you imagine it, when you dare to imagine it, dare to imagine it, what if he's coming? What if he came right now? Dare to imagine it. There's something in the imagination. There's something in the daring of that that's formative. It'll kick something into motion that makes you more eager to do what's right. And here's what's important about that. I mean, the reality is, is, is that when you start out in faith, it, it, or when you have things that you're doing in faith, it's kind of fun. Projects that we do, or when you start out and you first start coming to church, or you start first reading the Bible or whatever. I mean, some of these things are getting together with other Christians. It's kind of cool. It's kind of new. It's got a wind to it. It's not unlike uh, when you first meet somebody, and you kind of, you know, like it on them. Right? And then you start falling in love. Falling. It's, it's so easy. Right? Fall, you just quit trying to, you know, you fall. The problem is you hit. Some harder than others. But once you... I have no feeling in my arm. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm glad we have insurance. But... the. Once you stop falling, it's either over or you start growing in love. Growing in love is harder than falling in love. See, when you start following Jesus, there's a point at which it's no longer easy, it's no longer fun, it's no longer has a wind to it. You have to engage. You have to pray prayers you don't want to pray. You have to start, re- you know, start reading or gathering together with other people and you don't get anything out of it. It's sort of boring. But this is where Stopping to think about his return actually energizes you to continue on when you don't want to do it. It's to stop and to think, Jesus, you're coming, and my life matters, and I'm supposed to be part of your story. That is thinking these kind of thoughts that inject us with courage and strength to keep doing, to be eager where we weren't eager. It is a redeeming thing in the life of the believer. It is the advent of hope, our blessed hope. And then lastly, one of the things I love about the return of Jesus is that it reminds us, the whole notion reminds us that this isn't the end for us. And you know what's inside all of us? There's this ache, I call it the ache. It's this thing in us that wants more than what's here. Ecclesiastes said, it's eternity's been set in our heart. In other words, well the psalmist said it this way, I'm in a dry and weary land where there is no water. What's he saying? I've got a thirst nothing on this world can satisfy. I've got this thirst that I can't find anything to satisfy. It's, it's, it's Ecclesiastes where, uh, where Solomon goes, I did everything I wanted to do. I had all the money I needed. I, had all the, I was a king, whatever I wished. I could decree it. And I got everything I could have ever imagined. And when it was all done after getting it, I thought it's all meaningless. It's all the land of the suck. See, what if that's true? What if there's nothing in this world that will really satisfy? What if we all come into this world with an ache? Because we're expecting Eden. And it ain't here. We didn't get any memos that it ain't here. And we come into the world and we expect our parents to be better maybe than they were. We expect our friends, our family to be better. We expect life to be better. And every time our hope, there's something. You can read the pagan philosophers. There's always this sense that there's something more than what's here. There's something more than what's here. And there's this ache. I want it. And so we try to, we try to gather to try to feel, fill that hole that only eternity can fill. Fill that ache that only eternity we can fill with stuff that doesn't fill it. And, and that's really the root, I think, of sin. 
is that we get hope deferred makes the heart sick. Our hopes are deferred, our heart gets sick, and then we try to fill it. What do you fill your life with when you're lonely or you're tired or somebody rejects you? And you get to that part where you're going that part of you, the ache. What do you do? You know, some of us, we eat a pie. Some of us eat two pies. We just feel like, you know, we're just, we're lonely. Something, we're just trying to fill that ache. Or some of us go out, buy a couch or a new outfit. Why? Because what do you do? Where do you hide when you're achy? Where do you hide? See, what, what the Christian solution is, and I double dog dare you to try this. Next time you're achy, and next time you're saying, God, I want to eat this pie, what, what you should, just try this. Say, God, I'm aching, but I, help me understand that I'm in a world where I'm always going to have an ache. On some level, no matter how entertained I am or whatever, there's always going to be something in me that's aching. And that ache is for what you bring when you return. It's the longing for his return. And if you actually identify the ache with the longing for his return instead of the what you do, the naughties you do, I mean, trying to scratch the itch of your achiness, you know, with something natural, it's kind of like if you had an itch on your back and you took a chainsaw and you tried to scratch it. I mean, immediately it does eliminate the itch. But you know it gets itchier later. <laughs> you got some problems, Right? See, there's nothing, there, you, you, we are in a land of broken toys. We are achy. There is something in us that is never going to be satisfied. After you get all your Christmas presents and open them all, you're still going to be sitting there going, I suggest to you, that's the longing for Jesus. I suggest to you, that's the longing for his return. And I dare you to try it. Instead of running to your little favorite hiding spaces, the little naughty places. Stop right there and say, God, this is what I usually do when I feel this way. But you know what? I think I've seen something. I think you've promised to return. Help me to connect this longing to you. Help me have an Advent moment. Have yourself a merry little Advent.